My name is Mike Vituzzi. I'm the founder of Contemporary Spirituality, and I'm here today with Nick Pickrell, who is the organizer of The Open Table, a local Kansas City dinner church. And uh, we're going to spend some time talking about Nick and how he got involved at Open Table, about the formation process, what they've done, where they're going, and then uh, if you're interested, how you can uh, learn more. So with that said, uh, Nick, tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, I understand you started in kind of a evangelical fundamentalist Baptist church, and uh, some things occurred uh, that shifted you, your thinking and your theology over time. But catch us up with your journey, how you ultimately got to the open table. Yeah, for sure. So like you said, I, I did grow up in kind of like the fire brimstone, fear is the main motivator to get people saved kind of place. Um, I, I, I did, in fact, leave there. Um, and But not necessarily for theological reasons. I, I found myself at a place called Heartland Community Church. They had uh, another evangelical non-denominational place. But they had a lot of production, uh, big lights, a loud band, and I was, I was hooked. A lot of people my own age were headed there. So that's where I found myself. Um, at the same time, I was also working for uh, a nonprofit called Youth Front, formerly Kansas City Youth for Christ. Um, and they did a lot of, a lot of theological shaping in me um, as they were transitioning theologically themselves. And while working there, one of the things that I, I realized that I loved most about Youth Front was spending uh, the summers together at the summer camps. They have a couple summer camps down south of Kansas City. And what I loved about it was the fact that, you know, it, it's an ecosystem where a bunch of different folks were coming together who had similar values to do good work. And I loved the time at the, at the summer camp. And then I hated the time, <laughs> the nine months that I got to sit, the, that I got to spend sitting behind a desk. Yeah. So um, during one of those nine month periods, someone had uh, split me a sermon by a guy named Shane Claiborne in a book called Irresistible Revolution. Shane Claiborne is someone who's known for um, being, I don't know, kind of an evangelist for what's known as the new monasticism. It's, it's the new movement towards a, a more monastic way of life. So I read that and immediately fell in love hearing about how they had formed an intentional community, intentional Christian community in Philadelphia, um, how they were working to decriminalize houselessness out there and doing all sorts of really good work. And I was just, I felt myself coming alive. Like my heart would race anytime I read this stuff. So I decided, um, okay, I'm just going to do what Shane did and see what happens. <laughs> so um, Shane at one point went to India to hang with Mother Teresa. At the time that I decided to take a trip to India, um, Mother Teresa had already passed away. And so I, I spent a month in India and I, I brought some books. And it was there that I had some pretty, pretty life-changing experiences. It was pretty clear that, that God was telling me something uh, with the combination of books that I brought and the experiences that I had in rural Southern India at an orphanage. And uh, one of the, the funny things that I love is outside of the formational experiences that happened at the orphanage, there was, um, I met a Catholic priest on the plane ride over 
and he he told he insisted that he must show me India, and and so I was like, okay, let's do this. And so I altered my travel plans and ended up hanging out with a priest for the last week of my trip, and he took me to the place where Thomas was believed to have been martyred. He took me to um, this place called Oroville, which is a an intentional community. Um, down in southern India where there's people from 37 different countries and they're all working together and they, they built this beautiful prayer chapel. Uh, they, they had made the most beautiful gardens out, out of what used to be just a bunch of red dirt. Yeah. And it was just striking to see the way that all these people shared all things in common and all that stuff. And all this happened while I was reading about things like the Catholic worker movement and intentional Christian living. And so by the time I got home, I was like, I've got to do this. And uh, then I got an email in my inbox uh, saying, Hey, there's a new Catholic worker house in Kansas city and we're going to be meeting. And so I knew I had to be at that meeting. So. And and what year are we, are we now, Nick? Oh yeah. We're at like 2007. And you're, um, you're a young man. How old are you now? and, And how old were you then? Yeah, I'm 39 now, and I would have been 25, I think, then. So just old enough to rent a car. <laughs> wow. You know, and those having been to India myself and, and been to southern India, uh, Caroli, and I, I think I know where you're you're talking about with the um, St. Thomas. I mean, the, the Catholic population is about 2% there. So, the you know, you meeting a Catholic priest who happened to be going to India, who happened to have the time to run you around, is fascinating. Uh, anyway, I interrupted you, but yeah, so Cherith Brook, Catholic worker, then what? Yeah, yeah, so I, I moved in, I, I showed up, they gave me a book, they gave me some cookies, and I was hooked. So I, I coerced a friend of mine uh, to also move in with, with me, and so I ended up spending five years at the Catholic worker. And it was there that I got, you know, firsthand experience of what living in, Christian, living in intentional Christian community looked like. So there at Cherith Brook, we offered showers to folks. And still do offer showers to folks who are sleeping on the streets, change of clothes, breakfast. On occasion, we ask uh, different folks to move in with us, um, more in like a transitional capacity until folks are on their feet and are uh, ready to, to go and do whatever it is that they want to do. So we, we at the open table become kind of a landing spot for that. In addition to that, though, we do we did go full on hippie commune where we shared cars, we shared income. Yeah. Um, we biked everywhere whenever we could, and then we bust everywhere when we couldn't bike, and then we took one of the two community cars whenever we couldn't do either one of those things. But we had yeah. chickens and bees and gardens and all that, so so we were we were going for it. Uh, yeah. But it was it was there at Cherith Brook that I I really fell in love with the idea of action and contemplation. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was something that was really crucial to the life of Cherith Brook. Uh, so what we would do is we would talk theology, uh, we would, we would do different things to connect with God in a variety of ways, but then we would act. Um, and so the action would be either direct service, like what we did with the showers, or the action would be, uh, more in the political sphere where we would oppose efforts to further criminalize those who are houseless, um, just basically anything that was going to put further blame on folks who are experiencing poverty. Uh, because we, we see the, the, the presence of poverty 
not as um, an individual problem, not the problem of folks who are experiencing poverty, but it's actually a failure of the systems at the, at the highest levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so for us, we see systemic reasons why folks are continuing to um, experience poverty or racism or sexism or all these things. So we're never going to be the person that's <laughs> going to put the blame on the individual. Uh, we're right. going to first hold the systems to account. Uh, what, because what a great way to turn it, though, because I don't think most most folks are doing that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at even a lot of where the nonprofit dollars are going, a lot of it's right. towards direct service, which does not address the larger structural issues at all. Right. So we, we definitely have a lot of work to do in that regard, for sure. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so that that was that was the place where I had my own political awakening. It, it's also the it's the place where I woke up to the social, political, and economic elements of the gospel. You know, Jesus had some very specific things to say about economics, social order, and politics, and it got him killed. And yeah. um, and so, if we are to take up our mantle as Christians, um, we recognize that our message, if if it isn't causing those in power to squirm a little bit. We've got some growing to do ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then what? So you've, you're at Cherithbrook for five years. Yeah, yeah. So at, at the end of that time, um, I ended up I ended up transitioning out of Cherithbrook after living there for five years, and I found myself for the next six months working, uh, doing social work, and doing uh, some administrative tasks at a at a local church in town. So um, I don't know. For, so for those who are unfamiliar with Cherith Brook, the way it works is we just do – like folks come in, they have needs, we respond to those needs. And it's as simple as that. We don't have case notes. We don't have you know, reporting that we have to do because of grants or things. Um, we, we as the workers help support the, the work of that house um, as well as outside donors. And we just do what we do. Uh, and so I'm sitting there doing like having, you know, just helped people for five years at, at Cherith Brook, walked alongside folks to, to help them meet their own needs, uh, right. help them achieve their own goals. And then all of a sudden I find myself at an institution where I have to do a lot of reporting, a lot of case notes. And the, 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 the grant that I was working on um, was very limited in scope. So I was, having to turn away a whole mess of folks that, that uh, really needed what this program had to offer, but they were not mm-hmm. eligible. And so it really kind of bummed me out. Like there was no creative, uh, there's no creativity to these jobs. There, there was no autonomy to these jobs. And so I was ready for something else. And so right. someone put in front of my face that, Hey, second Presbyterian church is looking to hire someone to start a church. And although it freaked me out, of all the things that I could have done at, at that moment, that was the one that definitely scared me the most. But yeah. I also thought, um, I also thought to myself, well, at least I won't get bored. <laughs> so, so I ended up saying yes to that. And, and after getting going at the open table, I began to really fall in love with it and realize that it was actually a call that I was unaware of at the time that I said yes. To, to start a church from nothing. <laughs> yeah, so, not many people in their early 30s are um, getting asked to start a church, but tell, the, the, I think the listeners uh, will be interested in knowing, t- 
Okay, uh, unwind the uh, the whole concept uh, a little bit more about this open table and, and how it got started by the Presbyterian Church, so so people have some background. Yeah, for sure. So um, basically, th- there's a movement within the Presbyterian Church. A lot of mainline denominations are, uh, if if you are not aware, are on the decline. Have been since the '60s, and mainline churches ha- have not been doing the best job. Uh, planting new churches. And a lot of folks, uh, a lot of research has been done that, that shows that the way that church often grows exponentially is through new church starts versus mm-hmm. uh, reforming institutions that have already been there, if that makes sense. Like it, it, you can still see growth for sure, but it, um, it, it happens much easier when you're starting from scratch and get to create the culture that you want to create with a new church. Right. So, so the Presbyterian Church decided to start this thing called 1001 New Worshiping Communities, and it was their attempt at doing church planting. So um, I was hired on to start a church from nothing, and basically what I did was I, I gathered together a bunch of friends that I knew who had been really damaged, traumatized by the church, and I, I you know, bought them some pizza and just asked them three basic questions on a couple different occasions. Um, I asked them, what did they love about the church? Um, how did the church let them down? And what are their dreams for the church? And, and based on those conversations, that largely formed what the open table was then to become. But not only did it do that, it also, I was also able to identify seven folks uh, who were very engaged in those conversations. Uh, and I, I was able to ask them and they said, yes, let's do this. Uh, but I basically asked them like, Hey, do you, you want to meet and help actually get this thing off the ground and form the nucleus of this? And so we met, you know, for about nine months to, uh, just kind of hashing out what values we wanted to be present. And so we landed on hospitality, rest, beauty, and community. Um, justice was implicit, uh, in the midst of all this, but we've since added a fifth value, which is justice. So that that's now been made explicit, <laughs> but we, we like, you know, met and talked about what values we wanted present. And then we started doing some research to see what kind of innovative things folks were doing around town. And then we launched the open table. And uh, some of the things that we decided we really wanted to be present um, was we wanted to make sure that um, instead of, being a charismatic personality led thing, we, we wanted to be hearing from a multitude of, of voices. We, we weren't there just to have one kind of spiritual leader that's going to be consistently teaching day in and day out. We wanted to be hearing from a multitude of perspectives because we recognize that every single individual, we have blind spots, we have areas of strength, areas of weakness, and, and there are a whole mess of folks who aren't often given the opportunity to speak their perspective, um, especially in the church space. So, um, so that was one thing that we wanted to make sure was present. Uh, the second thing was we, we wanted to avoid putting too much stock into what any one person says. <laughs> Um, yeah. You know, it reminds me of like the spiritual direction program that my partner Sarah and I have been going through. Um, but, you know, when spiritual direction first started, it was definitely folks seeking a spiritual guru who would just dispel information and advice. But, you know, now the, the, with the 20th and 21st century, spiritual direction looks like is more like companionship. It's more like dialogue. It's more yeah. like asking really good questions 
and uh, it being much more of a participatory environment. And the open table, like that's squarely where we wanted to be. So we, we wanted to be a space where everybody's wisdom had a, um, a chance to have space within our gatherings. And so we, we made a commitment to be dialogical. So, um, and then outside of that, we decided we wanted to have food at our gatherings. So in that way, um, the, the, the dinner has served as our communion. Mm-hmm. And folks from many different spots all over town were gathered together and breaking bread. So, so those were the elements that we wanted. And, and it wasn't until maybe a year or two later that I realized that <laughs> what we ended up doing was borrowing from a couple tenets of the Catholic worker movement, which is hospitality um, and these clarifications of thought or, or roundtable discussions. So we ended up doing both those things, which is really great. And it reminds me, um, Peter Morin, one of the co-founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, when speaking about roundtable discussions, he talked about how it was an opportunity to bring the scholar to the worker and the worker to the scholar. And so the idea there, which is very much what the open table is about, is not only do we want folks to um, receive um, spiritual formation, but we also want folks to put it to work uh, out in the community. So we want that action and contemplation thing happening. And, and that's, that's the idea behind the Catholic worker roundtable discussions or clarifications of thought is that it was meant to be a space for education to meet practice and mm-hmm. uh, formation to meet practice. And so that's what the open table's really been trying to embody um, ever, ever since. As a practical matter, what happens there? I mean, I've, I've been several times, so I know, but for the listener's benefit, if they haven't been, twice a month, Sunday night, and then what, what's the typical format? Yeah, yeah. So we meet every second and fourth Sunday night from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Uh, right now, because of COVID, we're, we're meeting virtually only. But if sure. you were to, to, to show up at one of our in-person gatherings, uh, what would happen is we, we start with dinner. Um, and so the first section of our gathering is generally just a time for folks to have dinner and connect. Um, we, we offer a blessing over the, over the meal, over the communion meal that we're about to share. And, and then we sit and we chat. Um, after that, we have some sort of like artistic expression that goes along with the theme, um, be it through song or art or poetry or some other form. And then we uh, invite our conversation facilitator to speak that night. And, and um, it, you know, we, we do series based on different topics. Um, just this past summer, we were doing a series called An Anti-Racist Spirituality, where we looked at the um, the ways that anti-racist principles, um, they the, the and and the ways that Christian mysticism actually uh, align um, that that if we're wanting to be actively anti-racist as Christians, um, Christian mysticism has a lot has a lot to say about how we can show up in the world as uh, being Christians who are actively anti-racist. So, so what we do is we engage in conversation for the, the whole last part of the gathering. We have a simple closing that we do, and that's, and that's it. It's, it's, pretty, we're, it's pretty simple liturgically. Um, our, our main focal point is that communion meal. Um, but that's, that's, that's what folks could expect at an open table gathering. But the other thing that I will say is, like, everyone is a little bit different. So uh, yeah. depending on what it is that we're trying on um, – the one constant has generally been the meal is at the beginning. But outside of that, we've, we've tried on a number of different things <laughs> over the years that have worked to varying degrees of success. 
Well, and in terms of the attendees, it's got to be among the most diverse group you'll find anywhere, right? I mean, there are young, old, gay, straight, rich, poor. Um, those coming just for the meal, those coming really for the dialogue and spirituality and so forth. I, I think that's correct, but t t unpack that a little more, if you will. Yeah, so, I mean, ever since the beginning, we've had, um, I mean, we, we are a church that is still predominantly white, uh, but we do we do have a, a good amount of folks who would identify as black, indigenous, or other non-black people of color. We do have folks who are, you know, um, older adults. Um, we've got uh, boomers representing. We've got millennials representing. Uh, so we've got a good uh, we've got a good mixture of folks that are there. And um, and what what we do is we're we're trying to always discern ways to continue to honor what folks are needing um, from their church community based on things like their racial identity, their socioeconomic status. Um, their sexuality or gender identity. So those are some of the things that we care deeply about. And, and that's some of the things that keeps us on our toes actually at the open table, because trying to build a multiracial church <clears throat> that is queer celebrating, um, it, it's going to be messy because we've spent hundreds of years in our society segregated. And, um, and, you know, there's been hundreds of years of oppression <laughs> that, that continues to happen uh, in right. various ways. And so it's going to create um, an interesting dynamic when we get all these folks in the room. And at the open table, we are trying to actually lean into that, lean into that tension uh, because we recognize that that's the only way that reconciliation can truly take place uh, mm. is, is through sitting in that conflict sitting in that tension and figuring out how to do life together uh, in ways that, that honor where everybody is coming from. So, so some of the stuff that the open table is working on now is to figure out um, how to incorporate different elements from different traditions, uh, be it the black church or from different like queer theologians. Um, how can we incorporate different elements that would, uh, speak to folks of different racial identities or sexual identities. Because um, mm. <clears throat> ultimately at the end of the day, we want everybody who comes to the open table to have an experience of, Hey, this place was actually made for me. Um, and, and so in order to do that, like our liturgy has to reflect it. So that's some of the work that we're working on and we'll continue to work on for the duration that the open table is a church. So well, it's, it's fascinating to hear someone who's starting a new church, organizing a new church, running it, who's leaning into messy um, and leaning into tension, because I, I don't think that's the typical way people lead, right? Uh, it, it usually there's some measure of conformity uh, to keep everyone in order, so to speak. So kudos yeah. to you. you um, you're an extrovert, and, and you obviously don't mind messy, right? Well, I mean, I would like for things to not be messy, but I recognize that that's where growth is. So, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah. I'm still a person who's not the biggest fan of conflict. Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But, like, I, I see that that's where the growth is going to happen. I do understand that um, it, we, we can't – if folks are trying to go straight to the, 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 hey, let's get in a circle and hug it out kind of moment without really wrestling with the harm that has been done over centuries – 
Um, no. that, is a, that is a false kind of reconciliation. And so yeah. we, we recognize at the open table that we have to face the oppression that has happened and continues to happen and the trauma that has been inflicted upon people uh, because mm-hmm. of this oppression. And so until we face that, we, we have to go through that. That is something we cannot bypass. And so I, I'm very wary of any, of any institution that tries to jump straight to the love piece, let's hug it out, uh, without first facing uh, the harm that, had, that has been done. Yeah, well, well put and, uh, and spiritually very wise. Um, tell us more about anti-racism. I know there's been a lot of activity there, um, and I know there's a lot of training going on in the community on that issue, but tell us more about that. Yeah, so after about a year of the open table being in existence, um, we had an election in 2016, um, and immediately after Trump was elected, uh, we saw an increase in hate crimes locally, and specifically recalling a couple of Muslim-owned businesses that were were vandalized, Um, in addition to more um, bold... Uh, racial slurs just being spoken out in the public. Um, So um, when that happened, we we responded by offering a a bystander intervention training to make sure that that folks were showing up uh, and and getting involved in ways that were responsible and still gave the person who was on the receiving end of any sort of um, racialized violence that, that would still grant them agency because a lot of times with white folks in our own development, like as we start to wake up to this stuff, the white savior tendency is strong. <laughs> and, and what we don't often realize is our white saviorism does the exact opposite of what equity calls for, which is mm-hmm. we remove other people's agency saying that, no, I've, I know what you need. Allow me to help you with this. <laughs> thing. And and especially if you get the police involved, what we don't know is we may have actually just uh, made the situation worse. So so we organized something like that. Um, And it was it was by far our most well attended gathering at that time. We had 170 people all gather around tables having food and then engaging in (laughs) engaging in bystander intervention um, workshops. Um, Mm -hmm. But based on that, we decided, like, you know what, Um, this this is something that the open table really needs to wrestle with. So at that point, we made a commitment not only to anti-racism, being anti-racist, but we also made a more serious commitment to being uh, queer celebrating. So, so what we did was, you know, we launched a four-month series on racism and, and invited a bunch of folks to speak on that. We lost some folks at the open table because they didn't like the uncomfortable conversations, but we gained a whole lot more. And, um, what we decided to do then was launch an anti-racism training business. So we now have a cohort of 20 uh, that meets every month to continue to be formed in anti-racist principles. And we offer trainings all over town to different organizations. And our goal is to organize those institutions to dismantle uh, the, the, the racism that is embedded in their systems and processes and to hopefully give them the courage and the tools needed to then rebuild in a more equitable manner uh, so that uh, BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, and other non-Black people of color uh, finally have a fair shake at all these different institutions. Because um, mm-hmm. oftentimes BIPOC folks are the ones who are targeted. Um, 
either intentionally or unintentionally uh, uh, targeted in a whole myriad of ways, like getting, I mean, I I don't need to go down that road. Like there's, there's a lot of things that we could get into there, (laughs) but but that's, so basically that's, that's what we've been doing um, ever since. And we're now two years into that endeavor, two, two and a half years into that endeavor. And we've trained over 60 organizations and uh, over 5,000 people um, have been trained through the open table anti-racism trainings. And, and uh, what we're doing now is trying to ensure that that work that's been happening in our open table anti-racism trainings is also happening in the ways that the open table makes decisions internally, as well as the way that the open table presents uh, outwardly, uh, be it at our gatherings and out in the community and the work that we do. Mm. Where is um, open table going? You've, you've, uh, been running it for six years, so you've got a feel for where you've been and, and where you've come over the past six years. Where is it going? What, where, what, what is the uh, focus going to be going forward, if you see it? Yeah. Um, honestly, I, I think it's going to be um, really just a deepening of our commitment to action and contemplation, our commitment to being actively anti-racist, and our commitment to being uh, queer celebrating. So I, I think that is where the open table is going. And some of the ways that that would manifest itself in ways that others could see would be um, we're, looking at, we're looking at tweaking the way that our liturgy kind of unfolds over the course of our gatherings. Uh, again, just making sure that um, folks who come from different traditions based on their racial identity or sexual, sexual or gender identity we want to make sure that there are aspects of each gathering that speak to them. Um, that there are a whole lot of churches that, that speak to white folks primarily, and there are sure. a whole lot of churches that, that, that speak to uh, black folks or maybe Latinx, Latinx folks specifically. But there aren't a lot of churches that are, that are trying to be a place where um, all of that can come together. Yeah. So, so for us, like, and, and just to put our cards out on the table, we are big fans of liberation theology and Christian mysticism and the intersection of those two things. So, so for us, we're trying to do something that's distinctly embodied, um, is, is something that is diverse and inclusive in, in the way that our liturgy unfolds. Uh, we, we are, deepening our commitment to bringing in more BIPOC and uh, queer speakers than we do straight white dudes. <laughs> um, so there's, a, there's a number of moves that we're making. Again, not, not to, um, mainly, mainly the reason we're doing this is, is because we recognize that for too long, for uh, at least 1,500 years, it, we've been listening to the Bible through straight, straight white dudes interpretation. And we sure. recognize that we're not getting the whole picture. Um, and so like, we are huge fans of like the different womanist theologians that have come out, the uh, black liberation theologians that are out there, disability theologians, queer mm-hmm. theologians, all reading the same sacred text from their vantage point, And it's beautiful. The, the things that, that they see, that the straight white dudes never saw over 1500 years of pouring over this book. It's a different lens. So, if you're 
if you've got the power and you're on top, uh, just a yeah. different was it Martin Luther King that said the most segregated hour in uh, Missouri in uh, America Sunday morning or yeah the, yeah Missouri would be included in that yeah <laughs> yeah uh-huh. yeah tell me a little more about action and contemplation I think I get the anti-racism piece the uh, queer celebrating piece how do you marry up action and contemplation practically how, how is that worked out. Yeah, so I mean, here's an excellent example of something that the Open Table has done of of where where the action and contemplation can meet, and and we're always looking to deepen ways that we do that. So uh, the Poor People's Campaign has been picked up and and being carried on by uh, the 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 co leaders of of that movement, which is uh, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris and and Reverend Dr. Um, Oh no, William Barber. <laughs> so it's yeah, William Barber. I don't know why I just suddenly forgot that name. Um, I just kind of blanked on yeah. it too while you were thinking about it. Yeah. No, no, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad you picked it up. I'm glad you picked it up. My bad. Uh, but those two are, are co-leading that thing. And so what we did as a community is, is we wanted to really spend some time digging into the four evils uh, that that the Poor People's Campaign have identified, which is racism. Um, Poverty or economic exploitation, uh, the the war economy or militarism, and ecological devastation. So so these were the things that that they're they're picking up, and they also added a fifth, which is Christian nationalism. And so these are the things that they were wanting to to really work on. And their their goal is to build a coalition of poor folks from all over the country, from all different walks of life, to say like, hey, systems, do better by us. Like we're, we're tired of em- empty talk, empty words, like do better by us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we, we engage in a number of different activities uh, around unpacking these things. And at the same time that we are engaging in this deep spiritual formation, um, we also were inviting people out to the streets uh, of Jeff City. And so at the time, our community was just a community of 60, but we had you know, 30 different folks from our community go out to Jeff City with us on the Mondays where we, where we, there were coordinated actions happening at state capitals all across the country. And we had 12 of those 30 um, decide to take that extra step, um, which, you know, there, there are many folks in the scriptures who have done similarly, uh, but they decided to cross that line and risk arrest. And so that was beautiful to see that, that folks were willing to take, um, the, the spiritual formation that was happening and, and put it into practice. And so for us, like what, what we want to see happen is we want to see deep contemplation. And that's where like our Christian mysticism can kick in, like those principles there where we're, we're doing, we're engaging in practices that set the environment, that, that set the environment, set the stage for us to have um, intimate encounters with the divine. Mm. But then we don't want to leave it there. Because if we leave it there, that can easily just become navel gazing. Um, And so what we want to do is we want to see that translate into action out in the streets. And it doesn't necessarily mean that folks all need to go out and get arrested, but there are a myriad of ways that we can work to uh, alleviate injustices, which is ultimately like, I mean, if we're, if we love this book, (laughs) I mean, we know in in, uh, what heaven on earth, heaven on earth is supposed to look like. Um, and that is that is where there is no pain or suffering anymore. No one sheds a tear. Justice is what reigns. And so 
the beautiful thing is we get to engage in that work now. Uh, so not only do we get to have this intimate encounter in the divine, maybe in our, our private spaces and in uh, dimly lit rooms with incense and candles and, and uh, maybe soft music or silence, but we, we also get to experience the, the, and have intimate encounters with the divine while we're joining together with others in the struggle for justice. Mm. Let me ask you another question, a little bit um, different, but hopefully connected. Uh, where do you see the future uh, of the church at large, the future of institutional churches, and a dinner church like this? Uh, this is radically different, what uh, what Open Table offers from um, almost any institutional church that, it, that uh, anyone I know grew up in. So tell me more about that. Where do you see it going? Yeah, so, I mean, you ask a million different people this, this question, you're going to get a million different answers. I'm definitely no uh, uh, predictor of the future, but what, what, I, what I see in, in the church and, and what, what has made me so excited about being able to be a part of the open table and leading this particular spiritual community is that society is moving and changing at a rapid pace. And unfortunately, what often happens in institutions, especially if we have a lot of systems in place, is we, we can become less and less nimble. Um, you know, like it, it's ultimately going to take a lot longer for a 150-year-old institution to steer the ship in a new direction than it will be for a brand new, like a brand new thing that's popping up, like a grassroots thing that's popping up, maybe something like the open table or other new church kind of, kind of um, innovative ways of doing church in the 21st century. So, <clears throat> so unfortunately, I think the church has struggled to keep up and to remain, remain on the, on the, on the front lines uh, of where God is, God is calling us to expand our circle wider. Um, mm -hmm. And so because of that, um, folks are leaving and folks are leaving in droves. Um, and so one of the things that I, that I think personally, and it, it, it's what has given me hope for the church, and you'll see this reflected in the open table, but I, I do think that a bunch of folks in, uh, you know, Gen X, millennial folks, do I mean, and there are folks across all generations. I don't want, mean to sound ageist at all, but there are a lot of folks who are kind of who do do deeply care about justice and want right. to see justice done. Um, but you know, but what what has to happen is is there are going to be new tactics deployed. There are going to be new things tried. Um, there are going to be new ways that folks kind of organize that are going to meet our needs. And so the, the tricky piece is how, how can the larger institution come alongside and support this new work of like the church basically becoming smaller in order to grow? Because I do think we're in um, what Phyllis Tickle would call one, one of these like 500 year garage sales where every 500 years the, the, the church goes through a major shift. And I think we're in the midst of that right now. So, and what what I'm very clear about is that like we need each other. Like up young upstarts like the open table, we desperately need the the stability that an institutional church can provide. But I would also say that the institutional church uh, needs us as well. 
because right. we're out there trying things that that larger institutional churches could probably never even attempt to try uh, without knowing that it would work uh, for fear that they would have to just suddenly shut their doors, you know? Um, and so, so the institutional church needs us because we're trying and exploring and, and pushing on institutions to try and explore and to move in new ways. And so we, we do need each other. Um, and honestly, there, there are probably just some institutional churches that just need to like close their doors and be willing just to say like, you know what, our, we, we've met, like our, our time has, has come to pass. Like we, we've served our purpose in this space. So how can we, how can we then uh, use our resources to bless the next generation that's coming up um, and, and trying to reimagine um, like both take some of the ancient traditions and, and introduce some new ones that will serve this new generation of people who are coming up, who are looking for spiritual formation in a different way than maybe what some of these larger institutional churches have been offering. Yes. Boy, and, and, you know, great credit to the Presbyterian church who probably realized, you know, they they can't pull this off on their own. The only way they can really make it work is to um, find people like you and say, here's some seed money, go get it. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking of many institutional churches, including the tradition I came from, Roman Catholic, that are trying to do it internally. This is what we'll try to do to, you know, keep the under 30 crowd coming. And, uh, you know, I added yeah. a guitar mass or something, but probably going to largely not work would be my, yeah. my guess. But uh, it takes a lot of courage uh, to do that and to turn it over. And I don't have the sense that uh, the Presbyterian Church is really telling you what to do. I have the sense they've kind of just turned you loose, more or less, um, to build what yeah. Uh, works. Yeah, it's been it's been really great. And I know that, like, the PCUSA specifically, um, the thing that binds us together is, like, our, our governance. So there's a spirit of accountability. Um amongst the uh, amongst the polity of the PCUSA, but theologically it's a pretty big tent. And so, yeah, like we're, we're allowed to kind of explore things like liberation theology and Christian mysticism and, and folks don't really bat an eye at it. And so that's been really fantastic to, to see the theological um, freedom that's been allowed within the PCUSA um, and, and the support that we've received from them, both financially as well as just, um, just the relationship that we've been able to yeah. form. Mm-hmm. Now remind uh, me and remind the listeners where you're at, where you folks are at financially. Cause as I recall, it, it was kind of a, a five year period. And by my math, you're into year six where you were kind of going to get some stipends from the church at large seed money to get you going. But then you were, you're going to have to be self-sustaining at some point. Where are you folks there? Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Mike. Um, yeah, so this year has been a hard one for the open table. Um, what you said is right. Like, what's gotten us to this point has been a lot of generous grant money and, and gifts either from Second Presbyterian Church or uh, the, the PCUSA at large, like 1001 New Worshiping Communities or our Synod, which is our multi-state regional body. So we've received a lot of grants along the way. And this past year, um, the... The, the grants have, have run out, so to speak, um, with, with COVID happening, some grant opportunities that we thought were going to be there ended up not being there because there's a number of granting entities that have decided that, hey, we're not going to take on any new um, grantees 
because we want to make sure that the nonprofits that we're already supporting or the churches that we're already supporting have the ability to keep going. And so we, we have hit a bit of a financial rough patch. Um, we recently had to go from two full-time staff down to one. Um, and so that's been a difficult transition for us to manage. Uh, sure. But we're looking more and more sustainable with that. Um, we're, we're, you know, about 15 to 20 grand uh, away from where we need to be to be truly financially sustainable. But we, we can see a path forward there and, and through continuing to grow our anti-racism training and to continue to reach out for, to different churches and different institutions for grant funding, as well as donations from individuals. But we, we do think that the open table, um, regardless of, of our own financial standing, like I think the way that we're setting up, setting it up, we will be sustainable for, for a long time into the future. But the reality is, is like churches take generally seven to 10 years to become financially sustainable. So we're not too far off from where we should be at this stage. It's just, uh, you know, as many folks know, the pandemic has introduced a, a, a bunch of hardship um, for a whole mess of folks. And we, we definitely as a young church, up, like a young church startup, like we are, we are also not immune to that. And it, it's affected us in a pretty major way, but. But we're 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 really hopeful. We're really hopeful at the same time. We're we're we've got some really good things happening. Our leadership structure is not hierarchical, so we we are our leadership team is working to collectively vision and execute like what it is the open table wants to be and do in the world. And and uh, so even if at some point we have to go down to like maybe one part time staff, like. Uh, I'm confident that we'll be able to continue to go, but you know, it'd be nice to be able to <laughs> retain a full-time position because uh, oh. it is, there's a lot of work that we're up to um, both with our, uh, not only with our anti-racism trainings and our gathering, but you know, we also launched a, um, a discipleship uh, kind of curriculum where we take groups of people through that, that is meant to specifically aim to form folks in both the areas of action and contemplation. So we've got some, Good things going, and uh, we'll see we'll see what the future holds. Well, you're doing a great job, and it's been um, I haven't attended much. I know Hannah attends with with a pretty good regularity, but it's just been been fun to watch you and um, watch the way this has grown over the years. So, uh, folks out there say, shoot, they want to help uh, financially, and or they want to just get more involved time wise. What what do they do? Where do they start? Yeah, for sure. So a great place to go would just be to go to our website, theopentablekc.com. Um, you can also follow us on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram. Those are our two most active platforms. And those handles are both The Open Table KC. Uh, but yeah, you can go there and uh, on our website, there are areas where you can indicate uh, whether or not you want to volunteer with us, uh, whether or not you want to get involved with our anti-racism work. Um, as well as uh, places for you to donate. You can also listen to podcasts, uh, our, like a podcast of all of our gatherings, and you can also get information on all of our upcoming events on that website. Outstanding. And how about if somebody's old school like me and they go, you know, this this uh, Nick guy, he is, uh, he's got great theology, he's got great energy, he's young, he's creative. Um, I just want to have a cup of coffee with him. Is, is that something that uh, someone could do? Oh yeah. I'm always down for that. Yeah. Especially. So the pandemic it has been hell 
for extroverts. And so <laughs> I would very much love the chance to uh, have conversations with anybody who wants to have conversations. Like that, that's the thing that brings me life. So Outstanding. And your, the, your meeting space is still kind of in the basement at Second Presbyterian, but at Presbyterian Church, 55th and Oak in Kansas City. But I know there was a stretch where yes. you were actively looking for some um, new space. Is that still on the table or, or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we definitely would love to. I mean, the, the reality is, is, you know, J.C. Nichols in the planning of that area wanted a church to be on that block, and that ended up being Second Presbyterian Church. So uh, given the history of J.C. Nichols, we all know that that was not necessarily an area that was welcoming of BIPOC folks. Uh, so um, would we love to be in another space? Like, like, absolutely. We would love to be in a space that's a little bit more easily accessible to folks both east and west of our racial dividing line known as truth. Um, but in the meantime, like Second Press has been very gracious, very generous with their space. And uh, hey, they got a commercial kitchen, which I'm not going to complain about <laughs> as we're, yes. you know, been, had been cooking uh, meals for about 80 people a week or 80 people every time we gathered. Uh, it was really nice to have a dishwasher that would wash dishes in about a minute. <laughs> and, and we had plenty of big ovens to cook all that food. So, yeah, I mean, we're always on the lookout for new spaces, but it would be something where um, at our current financial state, we, we would need to get creative about um, how to handle compensation for us making use of the space twice a month. But yeah, we are, we are definitely still looking, but like, as of now, we're, we're still at second Presbyterian church. We're, we're good staying there for a while, but I know that like our dream is to be out of that space. Cause right now it's just like, we're, we're the kid living in the parents' basement. This is really what it is. So. Well, it's a great, great, uh, uh, place and, uh, folks fit in there well. And, uh, you know, when you, I don't know what you're getting on Zoom, but but when you were having your, your regular in-person gatherings, what, what kind of crowds were you getting, Nick? Well, yeah, yeah. Like, um, yeah, we had, you know, our average is around 80 uh, right before the pandemic hit. You know, we've, we've had as many as 170, depending on the topics that we do. So, um, but yeah, usually around 80 is what we were pulling in uh, pre-COVID. Uh, and it was, it was really great. It's a, it, Space feels great, full room, great place to meet different people who care about justice issues and and also care about, well, really care about how to integrate justice, contemplation, action, all of those things. All of it. Outstanding. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Nick. You are uh, an inspiration to me, I'm sure to many others, and it's just, it's so refreshing to see someone um, as young as you are who's already done it what you've done, which is a lot, and, and still just, you know, has planned galores for uh, how to build it, you know, and how to keep building it and how to make the circle bigger. So thanks for what you and many others there uh, do, and thanks for your time today. Yeah, and th thank you, Mike, for uh, leading the charge on, on contemporary spirituality and, and for inviting me onto this podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You're welcome. All right. Thank you, sir.